0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the smoothest glass of amarula for your mind. It's two crickets in a thorn tree with me, Nicholas Lorimer, half of your hosts, as always, joined by the other half of your hosts, Mr.
1: Gabriel Krauser.
0: And today we're going to talk about a thing that is of great interest to me and of great... um,
1: Import for the world.
0: Import for the world, yes. And that is, of course... The Defeat of the United States in Afghanistan, um, which we said we talked about last week. Uh, the show is a little bit late because I had a tussle with an enchilada that the enchilada got the better of. Um, and so I was ill <laughs> for a couple of days. But anyway, I'm back. That sounds terrible. I think it was terrible. <laughs> it was It was short-lived but quite exciting uh, for, the, for the short amount of time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know these things. Yeah, it's nice to remember that people still get sick in ways that have nothing to do with the plague.
0: Yes, yes. Food poisoning I, still I, happens, and so it goes. Indeed, yeah. indeed. Um, right, so I think it's going to be useful to divide this conversation into a sec- essentially two sections. And uh, the first one is... Uh, three sections. The first is just a very quick overrun of the background, which I promise I will do as fast as I can, despite the fact that it sounds like I'm not, it's going to be the kind of thing that should take a long time. Then we're going to talk about the decision to, uh, sorry, then we're going to talk about how the decision to withdraw was carried out. um, And then the decision of whether to withdraw was a good one. So how we got here, how the, uh, the pullout was done, and whether the pullout should have been done, you happy with that, Gabriel?
1: Yeah, cool. I think that's good. Sorry, I'm just have a tomato in my mouth, and I think it's <laughs> worth saying at the outset that this is a kind of um, this weekend. I was hanging out with some uh, world bankers, and the the, <laughs> the joke was the joke was being rehearsed. I used to be. Uh, uh, an epidemiologist and now I've become an ex- Afghan expert. Uh, <laughs> sort of joke about how we all talk about the one thing and we all talk about the other thing. And I'm sure that people listening to this podcast will hear a range of views um, and we hope to add to that. And I think it, these are important conversations. I, I have enjoyed the few chances that I have had to talk about um, the Afghan situation because I think that it will shape in important ways, how how the world looks for the next decade or two. Um, I think it's a moment that will be seen in the rearview mirror of history for a very long time. And I think it says something about – I also think it says something about the human condition, but that's anticipating things. Let's get back to the, 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 the basic right. review. So, so how do we get here? Um,
0: Afghanistan as a country sort of – uh, kind of starts around the year 1747. So it's actually slightly older than the United States. Uh, and that is, it was part of a a, a state called the Durrani Empire, um, which conquered parts of what is today Pakistan and even a little bit of India. Um, they ended up uh, fighting battles with the British, who, of course, were expanding their influence and control over India. And at some point in the mountains, kind of between what is now today the border of Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, the two sides kind of agreed on a border uh, that was later solidified in agreements between the Russians and the British, um, who were competing for influence over the region. And basically, they established Afghanistan, Afghanistan's borders, not the country, as a kind of uh,
1: buffer state between the influences of the two powers. Um, Can I just say one thing there? I, because yeah. I think people might not appreciate this. So in the 19th century, uh, and from the eighteenth century russia 's expansionist program to break down to the Caspian Sea into the Black Sea, especially to get through the Dardanelles to have access to the Mediterranean. This is an important kind of geostrategic interest after they figure out building St. Petersburg in the north is kind of great, but only for the summer because guess what happens in winter it 's called ice you can 't sail through it. okay right so they want to break down and have this sort of sea route. And then they want to sort of expand their way through. And then they see, "Mm, well, our colony lands aren't doing so very nicely. Colony lands, expanded territory, uh, hard to tell the difference. Uh, But those British people with the spices in India and the Dutch and Indonesia and the French people in what we now call Vietnam and so on, they're getting like a lot of trade and money and goods out of these regions that they control. So they kind of like the idea of breaking through to India themselves. Um, and, And this is where... Uh, this is what Nick was talking about. And the Brits are like, no, 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 you don't want to go too close. Anyway, so right, it was there was are old...
0: all the, was called the Great Game um, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, these two, these 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 two superpowers kind of fight sort of over Afghanistan mostly by proxy. The British invaded a couple of times. They have some nasty run-ins with the Afghans because Afghanistan, in terms of geography, is is basically mountains with some river valleys, um, and the river valleys are quite nice, and the mountains are quite hot, <laughs> and so <laughs> uh, uh, and it's, it's difficult to control because even if you can control the river valleys um, the, the people can always go and hide in the mountains and pop down every now and again to raid you and cause trouble for you anyway, uh, during World War One, the Afghan government which is sort of mostly independent by that point, although still kind of under British influence um, uh, flirts with siding with the Germans, but ultimately doesn't Uh, In the Second World War, I think they're too scared of the Soviets to do anything. Uh, And Afghanistan at this point is a a kingdom called Afghanistan, and I believe in 1973 or so, a coup of communist generals backed by the Soviet Union overthrows the king of Afghanistan and tries to establish a
1: socialist Soviet satellite state in Afghanistan. Which is pretty rare. There's not a lot of successes in terms of the Soviets, they had far more success in East Asia than in West Asia, or the Middle East as we call it, in terms of uh, sponsoring these kinds of good. much Much easier for them in North Vietnam, North Korea, Beijing, and so on. Right, right. Usually places they had lots of soldiers. Uh,
0: and of course they did then send in a lot of soldiers to try and secure the Soviet allied state because it was just on the borders of the Soviet Union. And a lot of the local people of Afghanistan really didn't to uh, they didn't really like communism they didn't like its anti-religious aspect they didn't like some of its social programs they didn't like the amount of foreign influence um, over over the the government and they didn't and some of them didn't like the fact that they had gotten rid of the king and so various groups start forming together to fight against the new communist government and against the Soviet troops which are there supporting it and these people begin to call themselves the mujahideen or sort of the holy warriors. And they come from a very diverse range of, of Afghanistan's sort of political background. Um, but generally speaking, they tend to be kind of at least partially religious in nature. They see their struggle as one defending Islam against uh, these sort of atheist communists and um, also defending Afghan people against foreign invaders. So they fight the Soviets for a long time. Uh, this doesn't go that well for the Soviets after a while, even though they make a lot of success and they they defeat a lot of Mujahideen groups, the Americans and the Pakistanis realize that they can probably uh, get something out of this and so begin to funnel arms to various groups in, in of the Mujahideen, who are, who are not a united group, actually, they're very divided uh, amongst themselves. There's lots of little factions and militias, and this is a recurring story in Afghan politics that continues even through to the current day. Um, you know, when you talk about a group like the Taliban, and we'll get to them in a minute, they're actually made up of a lot of little pieces that kind of mostly work together under a leader, but do sometimes do their own thing. Uh, crucially, in the aid the Americans are giving to the Mujahideen, they decide that they need to fund it, funnel it through Pakistan. So in other words, Pakistan is going to do sort of 90% of the distribution of these goods Now, Pakistan has a very interesting geostrategic problem with Afghanistan, and that is that the second largest ethnic group in Pakistan are the Pashtun people. The Pashtun people are also the majority group in Afghanistan, and they live very heavily along the border between Afghanistan and Pakistan. And these people, um, the Pakistanis have always been afraid that the Pashtuns who are not quite as closely associated with the indian subcontinent they're more they're kind of like at the crossroads between india and central asia so they have a lot in common with the people up there so there's always been this fear in pakistan that pashtun nationalists might um, want to break pakistan in half and take away the sort of western half of the country and pakistan has some good reason to fear being broken up because it was broken up there's a country called bangladesh today which used to be part of pakistan uh, yeah. For similar reasons.
1: So, and if I can just uh, say one thing about the Pashtun. So, my understanding is that, you know, this is really racial. Or this is old fashioned racial in the same way that Gaul and Aryan and Semite and La Rata Italian and uh, Gael and Slav and so on uh, were race groups that sometimes are invisible to outsiders. It's all just white. Uh, but these are sort of race groups that. You know, they can mean practically nothing, or they can really, really be important, um, depending on the period of history and where you are at the time. So the Pashtun are kind of like, uh, Farsi, uh or Iranian, as opposed to Arab, or as opposed to sort of right, subcontinental like Indian. Persians, yeah, and the, yeah, uh, and, and 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 this Farsi or Persian kind of uh, race group, or whatever you want to call it, it just strikes me as simplest to call it a race um my understanding is from speaking to very few people but who 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 grew up in the in the region is that it is quite alive uh the sense that yeah so so yeah has, has had
0: a huge influence over the indian subcontinent particularly the the northern areas and the areas um that are today pakistan Um, Persian culture was imported by Islamic invaders into India uh, during the Middle Ages and uh, as a result there's been this heavy kind of Persianized influence even the Mughal Empire which was the last great um, uh, non-British unifier or almost unifier of the Indian subcontinent their court language, their language of government was actually Persian not any of the Indian languages I think for a while and I think the main difference between Urdu which is the language spoken in Pakistan and Hindi, which is the big language spoken in India, um, is that they're pretty much the same language, but Urdu is written in the Persian script. So big influence there. Um, to try and counter this, these kind of ethno-nationalist tendencies, the Pakistani military, so Pakistan was originally designed to be as a bit of a more secular state, um, which is kind of a contradiction because it was also set up by Pakistan, by Indian Muslims who thought that they'd be at a disadvantage in a Hindu majority country. Um, that's one of the reasons why they pressured the British into creating Pakistan. But they still, at the outset, said, "No, no, no. We're going to be a we're going to be a secular state, uh, democracy." Well, that makes sense,
1: right? They were like, yeah. we're, "We're morally superior because the the yes. Gandhi and all those Indians are going to be super Hindu, and we want right. to be tolerant of everyone, so we're going to be more secular."
0: Yeah, At the start. Um, in fact. Their first minister of justice, or something, I think, was a Hindu in Pakistan, and he, he his signature was on the founding constitution. But uh, this doesn't work out, um, and the country begins to become more and more influenced by sort of a very radical form of Islamist political um, thinking by the clergy uh, and and by what 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 uh, the cool kids call the Salafists, who are like the uh, the of bin Laden, the Al Qaeda types, the jihadis, basically, the ones who think that Islam has got to be very strictly, literally adhered to, and it must wage perpetual war against all of the infidels in the world until it achieves total victory. So the Pakistani military makes a deal, basically, with the Islamists in the 70s, and it decides to push Pakistan away from being a secular country into being a far more Islamic country. And part of the reason for this is they hope that it will, by appealing to the unifying principle of Islam, because almost all Pakistanis are Muslims, um, they will be able to hold the country together. This means also that Pakistan begins to support Islamist uh, fanatics and uh, religious political groups outside of Pakistan.
1: So, now back to where we were talking about Afghanistan. This, yeah, wait. So, just and just yeah, yeah. to be clear, there because I might have introduced a level of confusion. So, to hold the country together in part against the racial tensions, right. Which are, which are where the Pashtun and the sort of non-Pashtun Pakistanis, the, which would be yeah, Baluchis and
0: Punjabis and Punjabis. I think the maybe, Baluchis right? actually do have a uh, have a separatist
1: movement, but yeah. Anyway. Anyway, so it's like it it. I, I I'm just emphasizing that because I think people sometimes think that South Africa is the only place that got that's got this problem, <laughs> or then maybe they know a bit about European history and they're like, okay, well they also had that problem. The Basque, the Catalonians today, and, yeah, so no, everyone. Of has are, this. No, everyone has this thing of like, well, my eyes are slightly further apart than your eyes, so we can't possibly belong to the same family. I mean, country. Right. I mean, like, we can't race, or whatever. This is this is. These so, the sort of subtle differences often are the most harshly fought over. And so you try and get a religious unification. But does that solve all your problems, Nick? Well, not really, um, uh, in part. So 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 there
0: is also another layer here, which is kind of interwoven with the race one, which is that the Pashtuns in particular are more pastoralist. They're more tribal. They're more um, rural than uh, the kind of the Punjabis and the Sindhis who live on the on the Indus River. So they, they have more of a city farm life, whereas the Pashtuns more kind of hang around the mountains, herd goats and, and things like that. So there's a little bit of difference also in culture there. They have a different legal system that they like to live under.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and that was another thing that kind of drove the desire for Pashtun separatism.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: trying, tr- to try and defeat Pashtun separatism, The the Pakistanis, as they're funneling aid to the Mujahideen, they pick out the groups of the Mujahideen who are the most radical and the most hardline Islamist rather than Afghan nationalists, and they funnel them uh, resources. So when people say uh, that the CIA funded Osama bin Laden and al-Qaeda against the Soviets, that's not really true, partly because I don't think al-Qaeda was, funded, uh, was founded yet, and also partly because um, it was actually mostly the Pakistani intelligence
1: services directing that American money to them. No, so Americans... no, 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 no. Yeah, we no, no, no. We've already got problems here. If the Americans are paying the money, then they are funding, right? But if so, they're paying so, so the money, the point, of, the point I'm gonna... making, the, the point I'm <laughs> making
0: is that is that the CIA, I don't think, necessarily always quite realised where its money was going. It just sort of, it kind of subcontracted oh, Pakistan into hand. out I the, think that's the, the fair cash. to
1: say yeah Yeah, also also by the way my understanding is that the israelis were part of this because a lot of the stuff that they wanted to direct to the afghanis when they were fighting against the soviets was was soviet tech because if you're selling them american guns uh it it doesn't look so great if those guns are captured and america is pretending not to be involved at all but if you're selling them kalashnikovs that have been otherwise acquired um and RPGs and so on that sort of uh, then and it and the works Israelis and the Israelis had, had, had the great stock stockpile. Policies. Yes. Right, right. So, and I think the Israelis too uh, were not always aware, certainly not always happy with where uh, their, their goods were being directed in terms of picking out the most maximum uh, Islamist uh, groups rather than merely anti-Soviet right. groups.
0: So so the, the the fighting goes on. The Mujahideen are pretty successful eventually. Uh, they really bleed the Soviets. The Soviets as is their general way of dealing with problems is they're pretty brutal. Um, and that of course kind of only drives more people into the arms of the Mujahideen. And eventually in uh, 1989 the Soviet troops withdraw and the communist government of Afghanistan collapses. And the Mujahideen declare victory. Only uh they can't decide on who's going to be in charge. So they all start fighting each other. And this is kind of through the early 90s. In 1994, a group of students um, who are part of a madrasa, so an Islamic religious school, come together and say, you know, we really think that the solution to all of our problems here is very, very, very hardline Islam. And that's really what's going to solve all the fighting in Afghanistan. And this group of students uh, then gets in contact with the Pakistani intelligence agency, said, hey, look, we were involved in the Mujahideen. Uh, we've worked with you guys before, and we think that a lot of Islam will be able to fix Afghanistan's problems. The Pashtun word for the student is Taliban, and that is how the Taliban is founded.
1: Doom, so the doom, Taliban...
0: I bet you didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, that's very good. Okay. So so the Taliban, also another fun fact, um, the Taliban are founded in the city of Kandahar in southern Afghanistan. Kandahar, it's not entirely clear who it is named after, but the, the sort of the most popular theory is that it is in fact named after Alexander the Great, who founded the city on his way through Afghanistan right. while he's on country spree. So the right. Taliban was founded in a city named after Alexander the Great. There's a fun
1: historical fact. It is a, and, and can I say something about the... Okay, yeah, no. I mean, we're still on the Taliban. We're not on Al Qaeda, but there is there's something delightful about the fact that the Taliban is like a student. It's it's basically the, the Afghan fallists, uh, a sense, yeah. And the and Al Qaeda is like that sort of cream of the cream of the fallists, where you've got like the super wealthy um, sort of heirs of uh, the new regime. Kind of trying to prove that they're still man of the people by being hardcore and radical and uh and my understanding is that's very much Osama bin laden's um biography is that he's he's born to a
0: yeah he did a semester in oxford
1: yeah he's he's, he's an heir uh, he's a princeling uh who who wants to prove that he's still cool and legit and like you know right uh, he, he basically he gets radicalized
0: by um, a group of students in uh, Saudi Arabia, I think, when he was growing up. Uh, he, he was apparently, according to Osama bin Laden's mom, um, he was such a nice boy until he went off to school and met these weird people. And now that's what caused him to get so. Funny university
1: idea. universities have long been same, same <laughs> problem, by the way, with Gavrila Princip. Eh? Well, yeah, his mom yeah, said yeah. he was such a sweetie. And then he went to the gymnasium. Uh, and soon enough, he was assassinating uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand and his wife and starting World War One, right? <laughs> so. Um, Watch out for school, guys. This is in
0: 1994 the Taliban are founded. There's only about 30 of them, but with Pakistani support, uh, they begin to take over the country, and by, I think, 1996, they've become the dominant faction in Afghanistan. They never control the whole country. Um, About a quarter of the country, a fifth of the country remains controlled by a group called the United Front or the Northern Alliance, who are crucially, mostly um, Uzbeks, Tajiks, and Hazars, who are different ethnic groups in, in Afghanistan and not Pashtuns, like the Taliban are. So the Taliban, uh, when they take over Afghanistan, are, shall we say, they're quite totalitarian. They have a very, very aggressive interpretation of Islamic Sharia law, and that includes banning, if you can think of something, is they would ban it. Uh, movies bad photography bad um music bad uh, every movie theater in the country there weren 't many, but there were a couple is closed down and converted into a mosque uh, they have public executions where people are forced to attend in stadiums where people ride in on motorcycles and behead and behead people um, The Taliban were famous and this is a this is a, a i think a myth or at least a partial myth that 's continued today. Um, they're famous for hating a practice in afghanistan of that's that's been long practiced by many warlords which is basically the taking of young male sex slaves usually boys and and basically have older warlords uh having a harem of of basically young boys that they rape the taliban leader originally hated this um and he tried to work against it but it's pretty obvious that once the Taliban were in power, this practice, which unfortunately has quite deep roots in the warlord culture of parts of Afghanistan, continued. Um, and so parts of the Taliban government continued to practice that. So there was sort of child rape, uh, girls were banned from working or getting educated, uh, religious police would beat you or execute you for almost anything if you were a woman who was raped, unless they were two other witnesses who witnessed the rape, you would be stoned to death for adultery if you accused someone of raping someone, so the Taliban were shall we say, bad hombres um, yes Michelle. <laughs> they they really ran one of the most horrific totalitarian regimes on earth and as a result, Afghanistan was one of the most backwards countries on earth, comparable to South Sudan, which is also you know, a very backwards country, yeah Um, which is basically just a bunch of swamp with people fighting over cars. That's basically South Sudan. So anyway, uh, the Taliban, uh, with their very strict adherence to Sharia, they really impressed al-Qaeda. And um, it was at at some point in the 90s, Osama bin Laden, the leader of al-Qaeda, said, there's only one Islamic country in the world, and that is Afghanistan. They're the only ones who are doing it right. And we want to see their version of government rolled out to the whole Islamic world and one day the whole of humanity. And so um, in 1996 or 1997, somewhere around there, Osama bin Laden is chased out of Sudan, where he was hiding at the time. Um, and he flees then to Afghanistan, where the leader of the Taliban sets him up and basically says, Yeah, yeah, no, you can stay here. We'll protect you. You're our guest. We think you're a great fighter for the cause of Islam across the world. And going to protect you. From that base in Afghanistan, al-Qaeda begins to train troops which are used in the Taliban. Al-Qaeda swears allegiance to the Taliban. So technically, al-Qaeda is a subdivision of the Taliban. And um, the 9-11 Twin Towers and Pentagon terrorist attacks are planned in Afghanistan. And Osama bin Laden um, basically and his minions carry it out from there. The US, shocked and horrified, number of intelligence failures lead to the thing not really being properly detected, It goes ahead. And afterwards, the Americans are out for blood. And they say to Afghanistan, give us Osama bin Laden or we're going to invade. And the Taliban says something along the lines of they had several different versions to some media. The leader said, no, he's our guest. We're not just going to kick our guest out. in other versions, they said that they weren't going to hand him over to the Americans, but they were going to encourage him to leave, but weren't really going to force him, which is kind of a bit
1: Right, but then there was the option. It did seem like the Americans had the viable option of driving, of of getting the Afghans to say, look, if it's going to be hand him over or you guys invade our country, then we will kick him out of our country. Uh it's 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 not you can yeah, find them it entirely. Yeah.
0: But but yeah. anyway, the they don't they don't ultimately fall to the American ultimatum. And so the Americans invade, and what they do is they go to the Northern Alliance, um, who've been fighting the Taliban for all these years, and together with basically suitcases of money, some special forces teams, some aircraft, they push the Taliban completely out of Afghanistan pretty quickly. Um, crucially, just in that early period, some of al-Qaeda's leadership are caught in some caves in a place called Tora Bora, and I think it's close to the Pakistani border, or it might be just over it, and the American government decides, oh, no, we're not going to go after them there because we risk angering Pakistan. And of course, Pakistan is still basically supporting uh, the Taliban through all of this. And of course, as we talked about in our previous episode on Afghanistan, the Taliban, uh, Pakistan is being supported by the US still. So the Americans are paying Pakistan to pay their uh, their enemies, in effect. Um, and this is a this is a trend that repeats. So the Americans have now knocked the Taliban out of Afghanistan, and they think, well, what are we going to do now? I mean, if we hand it over to the Northern Alliance, maybe they're not able to control the country; it just falls into chaos. Uh, maybe you know we hand it over to our allies here and then the Taliban comes back into power and then we've just got the same problem again because the Taliban will just begin rearming al-Qaeda. So let's see if we can build an alternative state that will last the test of time. Let's see if we can set up a state and hopefully some good will come out of it. Hopefully it'll you know be a bit of a democracy, help girls go to school, get jobs, and will ensure a more stable region that is more in our interest and so begins the project of nation building in Afghanistan Uh, for the first 10 years or so there's a lot of US troops in the country there's a lot of fighting but casualties are compared to most wars across history relatively low Um, they They spend a lot of money on setting up an Afghan government, and the first elections in Afghanistan, in I think 2002, go much better than anyone expected. Um, Everyone sort of expects them to be plagued pretty much by kind of violence and total chaos, and they actually go—I wouldn't say great, but not that terribly. Um, And so a lot of people begin to be quite hopeful that this new Afghan state, which officially calls itself the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan, will be able to last the test of time. Anyway. The Americans continue to pile huge amounts of money into Afghanistan I, during this time. Let, yeah, let me just intercede to
1: say, I remember the the conversations at the time when Afghanistan adopted this name. The, 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 is the Islamic Republic of Afghanistan. That's right, I got it right. And there was there was, you know, not all Americans were happy with that. They thought if we're going to do this nation building thing. You can't call it an Islamic Republic. That's sort of part of the problem is we went there to get rid of Islamic terrorism. And uh, I mean, this happens under Bush rather than under Obama. And the, the tenor of things is a bit different. But even then, there was there was the sense of compromise being an important and a necessary ingredient for making this thing ever work that nation building does not mean building a nation in America's own image. Um, and that if if a country, you know, wants to enshrine a connection between church and state, which is different to the U.S. and France, then you've got to find a way to make that work. After all, in the U.K. it can work. In Sweden it can work. Uh <laughs> so maybe it can work in afghanistan too that anyway i just want to that's an interesting moment that i recall of of early and clear compromise uh where the americans didn't feel like imposing a new name uh so what happens from that point well um the
0: americans invade iraq and that becomes very much the main focus of the bush administration afghanistan has kind of left Sort of on the sidelines, um, they don't really focus on it. they don't spend a lot of time thinking about how they're going to spend their money and resources there when building the state, and yeah, they just sort of generally think oh, that's that's a secondary concern to Iraq, which is the big one. Obama comes in, and there's this big sort of reaction against the uh, aggressive foreign policy of the Bush administration, sort of Obama says, no, you know we're going to get out of iraq we're going to um, stop fighting wars overseas and nation building and all that kind of thing. But we are going to see if we can finish the Afghan war because it is uh, the good war, right? This is the kind of the perception, at least uh, among many Americans. Um, there is a problem, however. Me? Yes, including you. Um, there is a problem, however, and that is the problem of Pakistan, where the Americans are continuing to fund Pakistan. But Pakistan is also continuing to harbor the Taliban. And there begins to be this sort of seasonal pattern to the fighting in Afghanistan. The Taliban, who originally were actually quite opposed to the heroin trade, realize that once they've been pushed out of Afghanistan into the mountains of Pakistan, that they need money. And suddenly, all those very strict uh, requirements in Islamic law not to take drugs, they kind of hand wave them away, and they start growing huge amounts of opium. which are then uh, sold uh, onto the black market and actually helps to drive some of the the, the, the heroin uh, price reductions in the world that we've seen in the last 20 years. Um, the Pakistanis also are basically sheltering them. The Americans can't properly send forces into Pakistan because there's so much cooperation between the Pakistani military and the Taliban. Um, anytime the Americans try to raid across the border, the, Pakistan, the the Taliban are able to just escape because they're given forewarning of it, and the Americans don't really want to annoy Pakistan too much. After all, it is a nuclear-armed state, and the Americans at the time believe that Pakistan is still their old ally, right? It was their ally in the Cold War, and so there's this kind of inertia that allows them to, to 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 kind of leave Pakistan alone, which is a big problem because basically the Taliban leadership for the most part set themselves up in various mosques and things in the sort of more wild lands of western Pakistan and the Pashtun tribal areas in Balochistan and they continue to live there, um, doing their thing, organizing their raids and continuing to attack Across the the border every every fighting season. So basically, when the winter is over, they harvest their poppies, they go across the border, and they see what territory they can take in Afghanistan. And this keeps happening again and again and again.
1: All right, let me just also add: they don't just harvest; they also refine. They yeah, they yeah, were absolutely. into beneficiation. Yes, <laughs> that's very tractors there and see. Um, <laughs> anyway,
0: so the Americans. Uh, Obama's administration, according to H.R. McMaster, who was a U.S. commander in Afghanistan for some of this period, and Iraq, he says that his impression of a lot of their officials on the ground was actually that America was really the problem in Afghanistan, and that the only reason anyone was really mad at them was because of their awful imperialism, and that state-building the Afghan state was kind of an impossible, futile task and they should really just spend the money on kind of NGO things, turning a blind eye towards corrupt practices and various things like that, and just sort of let them get on with it. It's fine. You know, the sooner we get out and the less we have to do with this place, the better. And round about, I think it's 2013, 2014, the Americans seriously begin to withdraw their troops, and they leave, I think, about 8,000 troops in the country. Uh, They also have relatively few casualties. I think they lose about fifteen troops a year or less on average between about 2010 and or at least 2012, 2013. And
1: instead most of the fighting is which, then done. Yep. Which which we should just explain, uh, since we're going through this in such detail, is in part because of the second surge, which takes place under Obama. Right. And right. and basically the situation there is Obama says in order to get out, we need to really double down. On being in there and the and 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 this kind of reminds certainly reminded me of South Korea but it it reminds reminded others of of surges that America had partaken in um, in Vietnam in South Korea and so on Uh, some in South America but I don't know those cases so well and sometimes it worked really well sometimes it really worked very badly and In this case, it seems to have worked well, the proof of the pudding being in those casualty numbers after the fact uh, and in the fact that in the last 18 months before now, uh, there were in fact no American casualties, I think, and yeah, no confirmed American casualties and longer than that, no casualties coming from the Brits. But in terms of casualties, uh, we should, it cannot go without saying that while the Americans suffered pretty light losses uh, because of the ratio really because of the cost ratio per soldier uh, and and this is something that that political scientists uh are not surprised by the theory has always been that a democracy is a is a strange kind of state to fight a non-existential war an existential war where you you know self-defense if you lose you're going to be crushed, annihilated, taken over, something like World War II for the Brits against the Nazis or the Soviets against the Nazis. Uh, But then this is an optional war, right? No one thinks that if Afghanistan, if Kabul isn't taken, that uh, Washington, D.C. is going to be taken. Optional wars democracies don't tolerate for very long, standardly, uh, because of the cost in blood and treasure eventually creating uh, unpopularity. And this is important to important kind of a steamy point, right, which is that when you first go to war, there's usually a rally around the flag effect, uh, which is really good for the incumbent politically. Uh, even people who didn't like them will get behind them. And you very much saw that in American politics, uh, both Afghanistan and Iraq, huge bipartisan support, uh, also bipartisan support for the kind of uh, dilution of American rights, Patriot Act and so on. Uh, because it becomes about patriotism. Uh, the line is you're either for your country or you're against this war. There's no kind of being for this country and being against this war. But that effect then the pendulum swings the other way. And the, the cost in blood and treasure sits as a stain on the hands of the incumbent. Um, and and that's a big Problem politically, so so they generally don't last very long, and the way to make them last longer is to is to change the ratio of, of blood to treasure, so that you're spending more and more money per soldier, uh, and that's. But this uh, yeah. South South. 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 But another but the reason. Afghan, the Afghan casualties. I just want to finish by saying the Afghan casualties were huge,
0: hundreds right. of thousands. That's 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 what I wanted to catch on. So, the Americans had established or helped establish the Afghan National Army, which was the the Islamic Republic's. Uh, army to fight the Taliban, and they, the Americans, essentially kind of made a deal. Especially in 2013, the After Afghan the surge, national army, kind yeah, of yeah. The, the Afghan national army would take the, the would pay the blood, and the Americans would provide the treasure. Right, that was a lot of the way this was done. So the Americans would provide air support, logistic support, training, and the Afghans would be the ones going into the firefights, doing the fighting and the dying um, to defeat the Taliban. And this sort of worked. The, the fluctuation there were fluctuations in the war back and forth. Um, in two thousand and fifteen, a drone strike in Pakistan killed the leader of the Taliban. Um, he was he was actually had just crossed over. He had gone into Iran to try and negotiate support with the Iranians, who actually were originally enemies of the Taliban, but since have since warmed up to them. Um, and on his, and that's, uh, a yeah, that's a Sunni Shia thing. Yeah, it's a Sunni Shia thing. Um because the Shi the, the Shiite minority in Afghanistan was very heavily persecuted by the Taliban and also the Taliban attacked Iran across the border a couple of times because they do share a border. But um the Iranians believe that the Americans are more of a threat than the Taliban, so they were basically willing to look the other way and ally with them. Uh so you know the the taliban are are continuing to be a sort of a presence and every couple of years they sometimes make a little bit of ground and then they lose it again and this is now essentially turned into a stalemate the americans and the afghans can't defeat the taliban because the taliban are backed by pakistan and basically safe in pakistan but due to american logistical support the taliban can't really defeat the afghan national army and it's in this atmosphere that uh trump kind of comes to election and he says no no we're going to pull out of this war." and so they go ahead and begin making a deal with the taliban a lot of american political analysts and foreign affairs people say the only way this war ends is by a political settlement between the taliban and the afghan national government but um the americans i think start to prioritize the peace deal over their aims in the country and one of the first big problems is they do not invite the islamic republic of afghanistan government
1: officials to the negotiations with the taliban they cut them out of
0: the deal completely
1: and i remember nicholas being outraged by this this is during this is during the trump era and it's just it was just i think the only thing that i ever saw nicholas be more upset by was the abandoning of America's Kurdish allies right. uh, in the embers of the anti- Isis war or battles right. Uh, right that was that was pretty stab your friend in the back kind of thing uh, but this was this wasn't as 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 dramatic in the sense that the Kurds were immediately being straight. Attacked
0: by the t- Turks yeah
1: yeah but in this case uh, and but in this case it was it 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 was, it was kind of more of it was like so on the nose, right? right? That you're like literally propping up this government and paying for its army, training its soldiers, providing logistical support. And then you don't invite the democratically elected government to the negotiations that you're having about the future of the country with the terrorists that you initially went there to expunge. Right. It, it was it was so mad that uh, but it, it gets better. failed I, I know but i just i do want to dwell on that for a moment because it was so mad that i remember you and i really moaning about it but on the anti trump clan i couldn't find hardly anyone who was particularly excited about that it didn't feed the narrative which, of what which the is, problem which was is, with the orange biscuit right. and on the pro trump <laughs> clan i couldn't find like it just was so mad, and yet it felt—I felt very alone in in being frustrated at that. Anyway, no, exactly. Except a- and if it for it gets you, worse. Nick, my other tree cricket. <laughs>
0: <laughs> the uh, it gets worse because the Americans then agree to a ceasefire, which the Taliban almost immediately break, which says that uh, you can continue to kill Afghan troops, but you're not allowed to kill any American troops. It's misogynist.
1: It's completely You see. couldn't. It's
0: <laughs> it is it is so incredibly double dealing and treacherous. But it gets better. So anyway, this the the the, the Trump administration then says, "Oh, and as part of the deal, we've agreed um, that we're going to pull out all forces and the Taliban government uh, the Taliban will then we we've asked them very nicely to then negotiate with the Afghan national government, but we won't be in the country anymore to enforce that." Uh, and to make things even worse they then said and the taliban has agreed to fight al-qaeda on our behalf which if you believe that i have an awful lot of timeshares to sell you because <laughs> <that's> <laughs> the most so i talked about how earlier how the taliban is made up of lots of like militias yeah um there is a particular militia in the taliban called the haqqani network The Haqqani network are basically the bridge between Al-Qaeda and the Taliban, right? They are completely part of both. They are the link that sort of fuses the two organizations together. They are at the vanguard of the Taliban's forces. And later, and we will get to this, when the Americans were doing the evacuations from the airports over the past couple of days, the Haqqani network were the Taliban soldiers providing the security around the airport, so the idea that <laughs> Al Qaeda was going to be fought by the Taliban as part of this withdrawal agreement is just so ludicrous. And it didn't help that the Taliban pretty much went back on their word from the moment the deal was signed. They uh, attacked things they wouldn't. They agreed not to attack. They um, uh, they refused to negotiate, and they just kept causing trouble. Anyway, so this sort of stalemate continued, and by this point, the, American, the number of American troops in Afghanistan was around, I think, 2,500. The Trump administration, as part of this deal, had set to withdraw on, uh, I think it was the 1st of May, 2021. But, of course, Trump loses the election. Biden comes into office, and the Biden administration says, we are going to review Afghan policy and decide whether we actually want to go ahead with the Trump deal. Now, famously, the surge that Gabriel talked about previously in Afghanistan was uh, very strongly opposed by, at the time, Vice President Joe Biden. And at some point during this policy review, before it was completed and came to its conclusions, Joe Biden announces, we are going to be withdrawing all forces from Afghanistan by, um, what is it, September the 11th. And he made this announcement at first somewhere in May of 2021. And what he doesn't say in that speech, and in fact he would go on to directly contradict this, is the Americans then begin to cut all logistical support and aircraft support for the Afghan government. They begin to pull out the technicians and advisors and stuff who fix yeah. the advanced American aircraft. So the Americans have we, set we up the about Afghan this army. Last time. Right. To, to fight in a very specific way, to fight with aircraft support in a sort of American manner. Um, but the tech that they use, you know, you can't just fix American planes. like It's not like everyone knows how to do it. And so at, at the, the, the Afghan technicians are being forced to basically rely on going into Zoom calls with American engineers and pointing the laptop at the plane and saying, okay, this is what's wrong. Please help me fix it. Unsurprisingly, this hurts the Afghan National Army's ability to fly their planes. And so their air support begins to kind of dry up. They're also not able to get Um, equipment and stuff to their troops. The Afghan government is extremely corrupt because of all this American money that's been flowing in. And so, for example, there's problems like what they call ghost soldiers, which is where an officer says, no, no, I command 100 soldiers. And he collects all of their salaries for himself. (laughs) But they don't exist. Yeah. So all these problems taken together, the Afghan National Army Begins to really lose ground. Its morale is really low. It thinks that the only reason the Americans are pulling out is because the war is hopeless and they're going to lose. They start to get scared about fighting. The Taliban are pretty violent and vicious. Um, they, you know, they cut people's heads off. They shoot people. They are they are very nasty to go up against because they always use suicide bombers and traps and things. So there's a critical morale problem. However, there is still a part of the Afghan army that works really well, and that is. The commandos the Afghan special Forces, who continue very valiantly to fight the war against the Taliban um, they have even a there's a particular guy who's actually a dual Afghan American citizen uh, he could have moved to America but instead he stays in the Afghan national forces. Special forces basically to lead them against the Taliban. He's really, he's like becomes a national hero. He's known by millions of Afghans across the whole country. They think of him as some cross between Saladin and like Richard the Lionheart. You know, he's like the greatest hero of Afghanistan. And so a pattern emerges in 2021 when the Taliban take over a town. The commandos rush in they push the taliban out and then the normal troops of the afghan national army who at this point are not really fighting particularly well occupy the town and then they hold it in defense until the commandos can come back to fight the taliban again unfortunately in june um, this heroic commando and a big group of the afghan special forces take a town from the Taliban. They request the Afghan National Army to come in and rescue them to to, to take over the town and and, and defend it. And the Afghan National Army says, we've got no air support. There's too many Taliban. We can't secure our, our entrance to that. We're not coming to help. So the Taliban end up surrounding the Special Forces unit and the heroic dude. And they execute them all. They capture them all and execute them. And they share videos of this widely across Afghanistan. And it's at this point that Afghans really begin to lose hope that they can defeat the Taliban. It's worth pointing out that the Taliban have never been properly elected. It's not clear whether they've ever enjoyed anything like majority support. What a little opinion polling has been done in Afghanistan and should be taken with an extreme degree of salt because it's very difficult to interview people in Taliban-controlled areas has never really showed them with more than about 16% support to the population. So the Afghan people, were, have. there's no evidence that they were ever, you know, truly enthusiastic about the Taliban taking over. And yet, due to the continued Pakistani support for them, due to their sort of fanatical ideological focus, due to the fact that the Afghan National Army was now hamstrung in various ways, they seriously start to begin taking ground. Biden continues to the withdrawal. More and more troops are given out. All sorts of weird things start happening. The Americans abandon their main aircraft uh, Air Force Base in Afghanistan. I think it's called Bagram Air Force Base. Um, But rather than hand it over in a ceremony, which is the way these things are normally done, they appear to just leave overnight, which kind of begins to shock people as to how this is happening. In July, Biden gives a speech in which he says, doesn't matter if we pull out the the likelihood that the Taliban's overrunning everything that's a quote and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. He also goes on to say, um, we've we've provided advanced weaponry and we're going to continue to provide funding and equipment um, to ensure that the Afghan National Army will be able to maintain its air force. This was a lie at the time he had said it. He promised the President of Afghanistan that they will continue to provide civilian and humanitarian assistance including speaking out for the rights of women and girls in Afghanistan. This was also pretty much a lie because they were pulling out everything they could. Biden said that he would intend to maintain his diplomatic presence in Afghanistan. Uh, this also turned out to basically be a broken province promise because yeah. the Americans currently have no diplomats in Afghanistan. Apparently um, Biden said to the army, you are going to have 700 troops in the country and that's it. 2,500 is too much. And so that is why they abandoned the Air Force base and said we have to put them all around the embassy. It's the only place we can control. All of this taken together causes a total collapse in Afghan National Army morale. And their units just begin fleeing the battle, running away, fleeing the country, escaping. And people begin to panic and try to get out. Biden also in the speech promised to not just get out all American citizens in the country, but also all Afghans with green cards, so in other words, people who are legally allowed to live and work in the US, as well as all Afghan people who had worked as interpreters and translators for the American government forces and, and government forces there. Um, his, his the end of his speech, he said, our message to these men and women who helped us is clear, There is a home for you in the United States, if you so choose, and we will stand with you just as you stood with us. However, no one seems to, the CIA messes up, the Afghan government messes up, and no one realizes how bad the problems have gotten. And so, in July, provincial capitals begin to fall to the Taliban all over the country, and this only speeds up the panic. Everyone begins to believe that the war is lost, and... So the the panic. Exactly, Kabul falls to the Afghan uh, to the Taliban. Here's an interesting uh, thing, and this is, I think, where we can trans transmit to our second point, which is, could this withdrawal have been done better? And let me give you an anecdote that comes out of the Wall Street Journal. I think the collapse of the Afghan national government was so sudden. The Taliban were not prepared to take over the country. They thought they would have at least another year of fighting before they did this. So they went to the Americans and said, we're worried that law and order is going to break down in the city of Kabul, which is the capital of Afghanistan, and we don't have the forces to properly secure the city. So we are okay if you take over Kabul, And in return for you maintaining law and order in Kabul, we will allow you to withdraw all the people you want to withdraw and then we will take over the city after you leave and then we will declare victory. Apparently, this was opposed. It's not entirely clear why by the American government, but it seems like what Biden said was "Um, no, because that would require us to send more troops into the country. And so, Kabul was abandoned to the Taliban. As I said, um, the Americans are then evacuating as the Afghan government falls, but they're in a really bad situation. They clearly hadn't planned for this. And so they were unable to destroy an enormous amount of military equipment that they gave to the the Afghan National Army, including 64,000 machine guns, 358,000 assault rifles, 8,000 trucks, 22,000 Humvees, and hundreds of armored personnel carriers as well as uh, uh at least 150 artillery pieces. So very little of that is destroyed. I think of the 22,000 Humvees uh, in the country the American army managed to disable 27 of them before they left.
1: Yeah. And so so the key thing to note is there is just the so the London Sunday Times put out that graphic which I think a lot of people have seen. Right, that's um, what I'm reading from. Of the of all the goods and all the goodies that Americans basically handed over to the Taliban um, the airplanes, for the same reason that Nicholas described in relation to the uh, is uh, Islamic re- Republic, it, it, airplanes may be going to be quite difficult. Not all, not that they're meaningless, because you can sell those off to right. allies who, trade them, who, yeah, or trade them, trade them to someone.
0: You can give them to China and Russia, who might want to have a look at the tech in them. And then, in return, they give you tech that you can use better, right? That so you can. You'll say, but the guns and the, the helicopter and, and the artillery units. We'll of artillery Right,
1: right, right. Yeah. Those are, those so, are pretty key. So
0: really failing to
1: scuttle, yeah. And, and, and that's why, um, just, just on the point of the scuttling, I saw the New York Post, I think it was, put up the headline, Dunkirk, to describe <laughs> the retreat. Which I think is quite brilliant, and but quite tragic. You know, the, the tale of Dunkirk. It's, I think it's it's an it's always been important, and I think there's something quite sincerely moving about the tributes that have been made to to that uh, evacuation. Right, but in, I, think, I think the story. The but they story left the fast enough to scuttle the ships that they didn't want to take with them, and the French right. even the Brits and the French managed to scuttle ships rather than. Hand them over to the Nazis, uh, right. and and,
0: and also the story of Dunkirk is different because we view it through the lens of the British winning World War Two. Yes, uh, the British didn't do Dunkirk and then surrender, and there were some people wanting to surrender basically at that point in the British government at that time Right, World Dunkirk World would have been
1: a lot more like Dunkirk if if Chamberlain and Halifax had gotten their way, and right. they were like, <laughs> okay, you know, the thing is we have. Not only must we run away from the Nazis, we must also invite them to tea. Right.
0: See if no, we can man, be friends. Was, Can't be friends. It was Churchill who blocked that. So that's one way in which I think the Dunkirk thing doesn't entirely work. Well, um, the, the whole point white, of this yeah, why Dunkirk is, is say it's that it's not yeah. the same. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, so they leave a whole bunch of equipment. That's pretty bad. But it gets worse, right? It appears. That the american government did not have a very good plan for how to get people out of the country so one of the problems they had was apparently a home affairs-esque visa application process for all of these people who they promised they would get out these um afghan interpreters and stuff and so for months many of these people had filled in their forms and sent them into the embassy and the embassy had replied saying we are processing your request we will be in contact with you in several months Which is not great. Uh, They had no clear idea of how many Americans were in the country. The estimates at the time of the fall of the Afghan government were anywhere between I think 5,000 and 15,000, and we still don't really know. Um, Some of those people are uh, Afghans who have dual citizenship, so they, you know, basically were visiting family. Some of those people were NGO workers. Some of those people were contractors, security guards, that kind
1: of stuff. And uh, Biden so they, sort of... They, solved... do, they do manage to get a bunch out. 13,500 yeah. managed to get out, hop from here to there. I, the last I checked, they were in Germany at an American base. Uh, but a lot don't get out. And in the last day, we realized when the Taliban uh, basically gets full control, the airport is now being abandoned. America's no longer flying planes out. We still have hundreds maybe 300 uh according to the new york yeah, times just under 300 american 300. citizens that are still there yeah. never and mind that's not else. including uh all of these others of which there'd be much more these kind of green card holders and uh allies that had been promised the chance to escape biden then says uh in an interview which is so bad that my understanding is it hasn't gone out but a transcript of it is leaked that no don't worry we're going to get anyone out who wants to get out how that's going to happen is unclear given that there's no embassy, there's no diplomats, there's no spies, there's no police, and there's no military. So the last bit of the exit is, is truly humiliating and devastating, but it kind of think- feels a little bit like walking around. I mean, the stories, I'm glad we've gone through this detail, but don't you feel a little bit listening to it? It feels like, um, the old Bailey in London, uh, w- whose design was, uh, Rather, Mephistophelian, you would walk from the uh, last night's chambers to the gallows to be hanged in a, in a sort of circle uh, quite deep that moves around the edge of the building. And every sort of seven steps or so that you'd take, you'd have to walk under an arch and each arch would be slightly lower and smaller than the last, and the walls would get slightly closer and closer to you so that you're just being squeezed from the sides and squeezed from above and squeezed from below, and all there is at the end is a light shining above a noose that's going to go around your neck, and then your feet will drop and snap. That's it. That is really, I think, right. how, in retrospect, the the escape from Afghanistan looks for, for, for so many people this so so you might trap. you might
0: think to yourself, uh seeing yourself in this position, right? You are Biden, things have not gone as you as you thought they would, right? Obviously things have gotten out of control. And at that point, you can't really do better than they did do. I think in the end they got out something like I think, as Gabriel you said, 13,000 American citizens, but they got out in total something like a hundred thousand people from Afghanistan, which is yeah, a pretty good number. However, it's a You know, there's still an enormous number of people left, possibly a majority of the people they wanted to get out left. Um, So you could ask, you know, well, he's in a bad position. What could he have done better? Well, (laughs) the British and the French uh, and the Germans, who were all there as well um, to evacuate people, showed what you could have done better. They were far more proactive in getting people out. Both the French and the British rode out in armored convoys to uh, grab a hold of, of their citizens who they knew they had gotten in contact with. Um, if you were a British citizen, you could basically call a very special number, which immediately then would log you on a database, and the British would say, okay, we know we've got this person here. We're going to immediately go and try and get them. And so they were going out from the airport into Afghanistan through the Taliban and grabbing people and taking them back to the airport. Much more which is key.
1: Which is key precisely for the reason that we saw in the bomb blasts In the queue outside the airport you want to do whatever you can to reduce the bottleneck at that at that so-called security checkpoint being run by the taliban you also want to help people imagine you're sitting in uh, a little one-bedroom apartment in afghanistan you've been working as a translator for whatever Uh, you've been working as a journalist you're a lady you've got a kid you want to get out so you want to go to the airport Uh, and take your chance but you know that you might get there and not get through the queues too long you're not on the right list it it takes too long and you have to go back now you have to go back having been seen so you not only carry your whatever reputation you also have been seen by these guys who might trail you on the way back and nab you this is a problem so you'd much rather have people going out to collect you I think that there's an important sort of general point to be made here which is that given America's humiliation uh and it's it's demonstration of of a kind of eroded capacity uh both for intelligence gathering for hard military operations and for diplomatic relations at a kind of reasonable level and here i think there's a just a small distribution point to be made which is that it feels to me like trump sets up a terrible deal and that's his bad and then biden goes through with it and that's his bad uh but Biden probably but, does it even worse than if it had been done originally, because if anything, be if anything, he makes it's more, more hasty plans. and desperate. Right. Um, but so this does this does sort of mean for now it's a very important time to think about those B League players like the United Kingdom, like Germany, like uh, Japan going forward, like uh, France. And in that regard, um, just draw attention to a move made by the European Central Court. I believe it is, which is just um, deemed illegal. France's attempt to keep its own military outside of European law passed almost 20 years ago by France, labor law, which says that you have to give workers um, like 11 hours to sleep every day and you can't make them work more than 48 hours a week or something like that. the most
0: European Union thing I've ever heard in my
1: life. So France made this a European law long ago, but then they realized that it's a problem for their military because you can't run a military if they have to have two-day weekends the whole time. So then they said, no, 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 no. This does not apply to our military. And that worked until it didn't. And then the Central Court said, no, 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 no. It has to apply to everyone unless they're literally in battle. Uh, so France's military has just been kind of kicked in the in the between the legs uh, at a time when it really is the case that it and the Germans and whatever uh, need need to be more Stepping robust. Fill the, yeah, fill not the less. hole that's
0: been left for the Americans. And let me just make another point on this, which is: so I just talked about how the French and the British were doing these proactive operations while the Americans weren't. Well, it gets worse than that. According to some of the British commanders there, the American commanders asked them not to do it because it was making America look bad. Uh, it's, a disgrace, it's, it's a disgrace, man. It's a denied. disgrace. But, yeah. you know, that's shocking. So on the question of could the evacuation have been done better?
1: Yes, absolutely. I, there can be no absolutely. doubt.
0: Absolutely. It is It is basically about as bad as it could have gone except if, I don't know, there had been storms that prevented the planes from landing, or something like that. Uh, or, right. I don't know, or or, or, or or the Taliban had decided to set up a giant rocket outside the airport. Um, and through this, the Taliban surrounded the airport. They, kept, they basically agreed to a ceasefire with the Americans.
1: Well, just hold on there. Just hold on there. No. Can I push back against that point? I don't right. think it could have been worse. If the Taliban had set up... Um, rocket rocket launches outside the airport to sort of shoot down airplanes full of innocent people. Then I think American mood would shift. And there are clearly some Americans who are not happy with this withdrawal, but a lot of Americans are very war wary and very sympathetic to those who say, just get get out there. If, if the Taliban was bombing the airport and rocket launching airplanes out of the sky that are flying with American innocence, then I think that mood shifts again and then you have boots returned to the ground, you at least yeah, have you're... airstrikes against key I think Taliban you're right. positions.
0: I think you're completely so,
1: right. So in that sense, America has taken as much damage in terms of blood and treasure and prestige as it, could. As it possibly could without right. retaliating. Oh, but there's
0: one more wrinkle here too, right? So the Taliban they set up these checkpoints around the thing, and as I mentioned earlier, uh, the, the, they put their Al Qaeda affiliates in charge of manning those checkpoints, which is not great to begin with. Um, they then also began preventing certain people from getting through to the airport, despite their promises yeah. that they wouldn't do otherwise. And this is this yeah. is the Taliban have discovered a new superpower. It's called lying. Yeah, Um, They've realized that if you just tell the international media the complete opposite of
1: what you're going to do, a lot of people will buy it, at least, sort of. It'll buy time. The key thing about lying and reputation is that if you're given a free pass, as the Taliban was, well, they've said that they're going to be nice to ladies. Shouldn't we believe them? People who trust... This was Hitler's great uh, uh, superpower too, right? Right, (laughs) Some guys like Churchill will not believe me no matter what. And and that's because they've established their reputation, they've established what this guy's really after, they've established what moral uh, guardrails don't exist in this case. But other people kind of want to be sympathetic. So they'll believe what you say, and then they will pull that back, but it'll buy you time. And in that amount of time, you get to do something which is amazing. And this is kind of, from a military perspective, the grand lesson that as if it needed to be taught again uh, in the difference between holding a position and taking a position in terms of how much it costs for America to hold the positions that it had had become very cheap in right. the sense specifically of, of, of blood, no casualties in the last 18 months. And before that, as Nicholas was saying, very low average casualties per year. Basically it was more dangerous. I mean, the stats are clear. It's literally was more dangerous per capita to be a farmer in California in 2017 than it was to be an, Afghan sol- an American soldier in Afghanistan. And farming isn't unusually um, – farming is much more dangerous than being a lawyer, and being a lawyer is more dangerous than being an accountant. Um, but that should give you a sense of, 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 of where things were on that front. In terms of money, it was expensive. Um, but there were ways to manage that my my oh my how different would it be if one now wanted to take kabul back it yeah. would be practically unfeasible given america's fiscal position it's hugely overextended because of the COVID relief and the infrastructure plans that it has going forward it just can't borrow money and short of borrowing money it can't afford um to 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 try and retake Kabul, uh much less more of Afghanistan without uh, having to redirect so many of its resources from the rest of the world that it would be uh, devastating to, to those peacekeeping efforts. So it was kind of affordable to stay in, unaffordable to get out and go back in. And so then the question is, so they can't go back in. Is this, is this a net gain? And, and, and I, I am sort of pushing us through into the third thing because I think on the second question, we're very over time. (laughs) Could the exit have been done better? For sure, the exit could have been done better. And this is not just retrospective stuff. I mean, you can also look at the an interesting question that emerges from Biden's speaking. And this is to me the first time that I felt, I, that Biden has. Okay, so one last thing on could this exit have been done better? I have been sympathetic towards Biden this year in part because America seemed to be doing really well and it was like, give these guys a break. You know, they've got the, the most amazing vaccine drive and wa- Operation Warp Speed. You can give, give the credit to Trump. You can give it the credit to actual American innovators and bureaucrats who, who really made their vaccine programs amazing. Uh, but their economy seemed to be opening up huge economic growth. A lot of it's sugar money, uh, which is a problem. You know, diabetes, you get a nice high, but then you get a terrible low. Okay, whatever. America was having its moments. And I particularly wanted to be sympathetic towards Biden and felt sympathetic towards him because I found myself trapped in this position where I was like, at some point last year, saying, dude, I do think this guy may be so old that he might be senile. I think that might be a reason uh, that he shouldn't get back in there. He gets back in there, he's making good speeches and Donald Trump is flipping not responding the right way to an assault on the Capitol. And I thought, okay, maybe I need to recalibrate a little bit. But here, and I think that's good, one has to recalibrate. More sympathy for Biden. But here, less sympathy for Biden. I mean, he's, dude, I think, it's clear that he has lied. and But one of the yeah. lies where maybe he's lied, maybe he hasn't, but it seems very likely we'll figure this out quite soon, um, is in terms of what he knew what he'd been advised by the military at the time when he said the Taliban stands no chance they're going to get there by December at the earliest, was he being told by by his chief intelligence officers that the Taliban was in such a weak state and that the Islamic Republic's, army was in such a strong state that even removing the logistics pulling the rug out from underneath it the army is going to hold back the Taliban at least for the rest of the year was he told that unequivocally or was he told maybe it's not going to be like that in which case he's lied either way it's devastating because either it means that the military advice that he was getting was useless or it means that he's misrepresenting the military advice that he was getting and those documents I believe will be declassified because this is the kind of thing that the the Yanks will chase after but so that's to say Generally, it's been done badly. Generally, it was predictably done badly. We'll find out more details about that. But let's shift since we agree that the execution of the withdrawal was bad as quickly as we can. Let's just give it 10 minutes to wrap this up. Was pulling out the right strategy after all? Maybe maybe it was, and it could have been done better, and... It's devastating that there are people that have been trapped in the noose and their necks have been snapped on TV, off TV. Um, but this has been a bloody affair all along. Is, Afghani casualties are in the hundreds of thousands. Um, this is a graveyard of empires. There's nothing to do there. America had to get out, uh, and, and that's that. So, uh, so right idea, wrong implementation. As, as
0: I have as I have said before, I am a bit of a mad interventionist, so it may not surprise you to say that I think that the answer to this question was no. Um, they should not have gotten out. Um, I think that, as we've said before, the occupation was relatively cheap, and there were benefits to America, and there were benefits to the Afghan people, and to the cause of sort of human freedom in general. Um, the Afghan government was... I mean, I think it would give the ANC a run for its money in terms of corruption and competence and general awfulness. However, it was kind of awful within a sort of normal parameter. It was not a totalitarian state. It was a state that was elected. It was a state that had transformed the country in the 20 years it had been in power from literally the most backwards country on earth, apart from South Sudan, um, which didn't exist yet, to a country that has amusement parks, roads, uh, women in universities, proper banks, movie theaters, a film scene, comedians, TikTok stars, internet, all of these things had come into the country under this, this government. It had really moved from a kind of time capsule where it had been forced back into the past into being sort of a modern country. And there were many Afghans who were Often leaving the country to work overseas or get educated overseas who were adding a lot to the countries that they moved to and were often adding a lot to the countries that they came back to. They still had, of course, a lot of violence. Remitting
1: remitting that money
0: back home. Right. right. They still had a lot of violence. They still had a lot of backwardness in the rural areas in particular outside of the cities. Um, Their court system was so corrupt that there are some people who think that the Taliban system might even be quicker because rather than, you know, Having to pay a bribe to get a ruling, the Taliban just read the, uh, their version of Sharia law and then say, "Right, he gets his legs chopped off," <laughs> um, which is so cheaper. less days, <laughs> less
1: days, less days in detention without trial, right? Because you get executed more quickly, more <laughs> <laughs> right. So, it's so uh, Dude, but That know, is what? such. A, so I think that's the. I think that. So I think we agree on this too, actually. And like if we'd had more time, I would have played devil's advocate. But basically I agree. I think that I – th- I think one of the strange things about this is, is people's sense of time, um, that, that progress doesn't happen across all matrices at the same time because – as with organisms growing, some things kind of have to happen before other things can start to happen. So first you have to have some level of literacy and some level of information exchange. And when Nicholas is talking about like the movie scene and the TikTok stars, I mean, that's symbolizing the fact that people are exchanging information in a way that wasn't happening in Afghanistan before. This is not just we in this little side of the hill have no idea who they on that other side of the hill are a problem that they've had in Afghanistan, a problem that's happened that people have had in the Balkans forever, which is part of the reason the Balkans were Balkanized.
0: It's such a mess, right?
1: <laughs> once people start speaking to each other, that changes what you can do. Once people start making money, that changes what you can do. And not everyone starts making money properly. Like a lot of people are still goat herds. But once you start growing a bit of a middle class, that changes what you do. Once people are getting educated, once people, especially on the esteem side, once people start to respect people that have worked their way up, yeah. men and women and so on. The and, flip and, side of and, that
0: is... Uh, just, just to add to that point, on the economic point, there were countries like India, like uh, not just America, who were very interested in using Afghanistan against Pakistan and so had invested enormous amounts of money in the economy of Afghanistan. They were creating mines, they were doing all sorts of building projects across the country, and all of that's now gone.
1: So I think one of the, one of the... So here are two big problems. One is well-identified by Henry Kissinger, who was kind of the mastermind of American foreign politics in a lot of the 20th century, was foreign secretary under Nixon. That didn't work out so well because Nixon was removed, but then he remained like a kind of godfather figure that people kept asking questions about. Maybe he's a bit overrated, maybe he's underrated, who knows. Point is, his piece on the Afghan thing was expectation management, that America's problem was that in, is that firstly you have to break things into two buckets: what's your military strategy, what's your what's your kind of political strategy, and that both were too unlimited and ambitious. That the mm. military strategy was to exterminate Taliban, and that that turned out to be unachievable, and so they needed to change it from Especially exterminating because they Taliban willing to, to take on Pakistan. Exactly. So it has to go from extermination, and they can't take on Pakistan because they're nuclear power. So it's got to go from extermination but, to management, to making the, sure it, that the Taliban just, stays down. Do you think they could have one exterminated,
0: exterminated the Taliban? Well, they probably could have. They probably could have done more. And by putting no, pressure no, on... No, it, that's, it no, no. But you, you're making so, the same
1: so, mistake that Kissinger's warning against. So, so Exterminate so let me, well, let me just, is not let me just more. finish
0: this. Exterminate is just, not more. Right.
1: The, the question just, is, are you aiming to drive the virus extinct or are you aiming to manage the virus? It's a difference in well, kind. Right, right. But, but on,
0: the, on the case of even managing, um, they only cut most support, and this was a very good thing Trump did, uh, to Pakistan in, I think, 2018. And maybe had they done more of that, because I think there was still a little bit of support here and there, uh, they might have been able to succeed at the point of management that they never would have even had to consider
1: the annihilation stuff. But anyway, yes. No, right, I mean, but you're flipping from execution right. to, to, to goal. What is your goal? And I think Kissinger is right. If your goal is exterminating the Taliban, then you're never going to execute well because it's an impossible goal. It's something that, if it happens, is going to happen by luck. It really is like COVID, because it's it's like trying to exterminate the the Kim family in North Korea. One day it'll happen, but you can't do it right now. The, so you've got to manage the problem rather than exterminate, and that puts you in a different mindset. And yes, atrophy. As you say, trying to deprive it of resources becomes much more important than trying to uh, hunt it down. Politically, the same problem of overambition. Nation building in most Americans' minds came to mean something like the opposite of what they first figured out under Bush, as it happens, who I thought was terrible in the Middle East, but in, in this sense was better. Like Islamic Republic, that's already kind of a contradiction in terms? No, it's something... A compromise deal with it nation building doesn't mean uh getting afghanistan to look like america it means getting it from a to b taking it one step forward it didn't have to be a democracy it didn't have to be a constitutional democracy it just had to be stable enough to be better than what it was to allow the kinds of information exchange economic development education that are the preconditions of taking the next step in a in a self-sustaining kind of way. And that's why I keep referring back to South Korea, which wasn't a democracy right. until the late 80s. Until
0: 1980s, yeah, exactly.
1: So that that is the gold standard of American nation building in a sense, right? Yes, that, but you don't
0: try right, and do it all at once. Yeah, that the nation building kind of happens almost as a side effect of the other stuff you're doing
1: Which um, is which is just guarding against they were like, we can't it. get rid of the North Koreans even then, so we'll just guard against them, make sure that we've got enough troops stationed here, that th- these people can't be invaded, that they can maintain the rule of law. On top of that, we're going to try and assist them in trade development. Sometimes they agree with how we should do that, sometimes they don't agree, sometimes we go along right. with it, sometimes we get very angry with them. So, I think these two problems are like, people who think about nation building think that America's mission has got to be to, especially critics of nation building, think that America's mission has got to be to go out and create new little mini me americas and right. that's a good thing to criticize it's also a straw man it's not something that any no one should have been for that uh people should have been for I something some much people, more limited and ambitious that can be a hope and a dream that you keep in your heart and, and, and I, I but in the, in, in the, did the did practical it. sense it's a lot like affirmative action to right. my mind It's you can't aim, affirmative action trying to aim for quotas it's just not a good aim Right. Real nation building will happen by accident when you do the practical steps in front of you, both yeah. from a military perspective and from a social security perspective. So those are the two points. The other point that I wanted to make is that I think that there's a kind of, there's a kind of failure in America's media, which now seems to have translated unambiguously into a failure – at the level so are you of. you saying there's a, there's a problem with American media? <laughs> I've never heard that before. A, a, no, no, no. But this is the problem. The problem, this was a media problem, but it seems to have, I mean, it's demonstrably become a, a major scale administrative problem. And it's the problem of picking out kinds, of picking out kinds of problems. So the United Kingdom is a different kind of country to South Africa. That is because of how wealthy it is, first and foremost. That means its problems are different kinds of problems to our problems. Secondarily, it's because of the institutions, the kinds of institutions it has, the quality of its bureaucrats, the trust its people have in slow, unwieldy, and debatable processes, discursive practices, voting back and forth, peaceful exchanges of power, all of those traditions, mores, customs, institutions, and actual hard wealth mean that there is something to be said for first world problems, developmental problems, third world problems. As for individuals, so too for states. There are just different kinds of problems. And the first world problems are serious. If you're depressed because you can't figure out how to make a meaningful life in a situation where you've had a nice education and your parents have left you a house, so you're never going to want for food or shelter, uh, that's that's a nightmare. You have to – it's it's very important once you're at that level of Maslow's needs to figure out how to get some purpose in life uh, by adding value to others or art or whatever it is. There are also very real problems when you don't have food and you don't have shelter. And, and I think that it's just so common sense. And it's the kind of thing that Max Weber was into, and it's part of the reason that I think he's still sort of super – great and underrated political scientists from the 20th century is to match your solutions oriented thinking to that kind of problem categorization. So that if the problem is that you're going to a super backward, brutal, underdeveloped violent country. Then the solutions that you bring to bear are largely going to be in terms of violence. They're going to be about yeah. shooting bad guys and making it hard for bad guys to shoot good guys. Right. In South Africa, you've got a very different kind of problem. In South Africa, we've got a government, we've got a democracy, we've got these institutions. The problem is they're not robust enough. So here, we are much more in the first world space where what you need to bring to bear is words, is criticism, shame, pride, that those esteem moves rather than the violence moves are very important in a place like South Africa. Because we have different kinds of problems. We might backslide into a more chaotic socialist state where we're like Venezuela. When you're in a Venezuelan situation, you have to use the economic tools, same as Russia, of sanctions and so on. But these three different buckets, sanctions, economic tools, uh, esteem tools, and, and violent tools need to be addressed to different problems. And America seems to have gotten exactly opposite. When it comes to countries like us, they're very afraid to be critical. Yeah, Because they think, no, you're going to scare them off and you've got to be very nice to them. That's the way to help them grow. Then when it comes to countries like Afghanistan, they're like, no, 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 no. We're going to let the Taliban in, but we're going to criticize them if they brutalize women and kill our former allies and blow things up and institute the most hardcore version of Sharia law. Criticism, That's going that's going to teach them a lesson and i don't know where i think it's deranged i think that it would be much better if they were applying hardcore criticism to us applying hardcore power to protect their allies and 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 kind of ultimately i think staying as much out of the economic game as possible now that they've done a little bit of dung us with uh, with china to to really try and encourage free trade i think would be very good but that's that's a kind of broader point. I think that the, the the application of that point to this case is simply that America seems to have miscalibrated what kind of trouble Afghanistan was in, what kind of trouble that would bring it in if it pulled out, and what kind of tools it has to hand to deal with this. And right now, my final line on this is the headline, Biden spokesperson will not label the relationship between Washington and the Taliban, says it's, quote, hard to define. (laughs) That is a signature failure in diplomatic relations. If you can't define the relationship that you have with someone that you've been, with an entity you've been in negotiations with, to whom you have effectively handed over, let's say $10 billion worth of hard material, with whom you have basically signed a deal that writes out the previous government that you were supporting, where you've clearly been... I mean, it's going to be amazing if America isn't hardcorely fingered for bribing the Taliban left and right to get what they have gotten out of them. If in that situation you can't define the relationship, it's because you've been played. There's no surer sign that you are the... You're the, you're the mistress. You know, you're the, you're the, you're the like, unacknowledged mistress, the one that no one's allowed to really know about. There we go. That's the phrase I'm looking for. You're the other one. If you can't define the relationship, that's because you're not this person's true love. You're not their true enemy. You're just, you're, you're in a kind of shameful place, and and I think that for America to get itself out of this hole doesn't require reinvading, it can't do that, and it must be very careful of doing anything in any other country. While it sits in this political space where it can't set limited, targeted, and practical goals, as long as it's in the space where it needs to blow things up into the extreme of turning a desert kind of inferno into california or staying out those binaries of all the way in for full victory or stay all the way out that kind of thinking has has gotten it into trouble it has to have more limited political ambitions in my opinion and and it's going to have to figure out how to match problems particular problems to particular kinds of tools to achieve that so good, before no. it's going to be able to do anything. And and the depressing thing is that I don't think America's even beginning to, to confront that in a serious way. Yeah, you've got Kissinger, yeah, you've got the National Review, you've got some people at foreign policy kind of talking in these terms. But I think most Americans are are still trapped by this like boo yay problem. Where it's like boo, boo Biden, this is all is bad, or boo. Boo, America for being there in the per- first place. Yay, Biden. Super reductionist, super defensive, super uncurious uh, mentality, which I think is really at the heart of of how they've screwed up so badly. I think it is a kind of switching off of the mind. This is yeah. too. This is too bad to be unlucky. This is stupid. This is properly stupid. What's happened?
0: I, I, agree. I agree completely with that. And I think, I think one of the big questions the Americans are going to really have to ask themselves now, are they going to be a global power or are they going to be an island? Um, and
1: we can, we can like talk
0: this. about that. Yeah, we can talk about that, I think, in another episode because this one is very long now um, and it is something that needs to be unpacked properly. Uh, before we go on to recommendations, I want to just give you one last little fact. Between 1996 and 2001, the Taliban had a national anthem for Afghanistan. Right, the official name of the Taliban government was the Islam- Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Do you know what the translated title of their uh, national anthem was?
1: Um,
0: no, let me, let me give it to you. This is the home of the brave. Mm. Anyway, mm. Um, mm. my recommendation is. Jim Garrity's Morning Jolt. Jim Garrity is a writer and reporter for the National Review. Um, He does a morning email every morning uh, called the Morning Jolt. Uh, You can go sign up for it on nationalreview.com. It's somewhere in there uh, if you look at Jim Garrity's articles. And they're really good. Uh, He just writes about stuff that interests him for the most part. He writes about Afghanistan. He was the source of a lot of my understanding of this topic. Um, He's written about... Uh, COVID. He was one of the first kind of major publication people to start uh, suggesting that the lab leak hypothesis was one that should be taken seriously. Um, And yeah, they're always pretty interesting to read. He's also got quite a light jovial tone to a lot of his writing, which makes him quite fun and easy to read as well. So uh, I definitely enjoy his writing. So yeah, check that out. Also, um, there's a video which I won't recommend because it's gruesome. Uh, But I think the Daily Mail covered it, and I just want to salute the person in it. Back uh, in July, just before the Afghan government collapsed, the Taliban took over Kandahar, where they grabbed a TikTok comedian who was famous for making fun of the Taliban in jokes. And they grabbed him, and while they were dragging him off to execute him, he continued to make jokes on camera to their face about how stupid the Taliban was. And they then went and shot him. Uh, But he, he died laughing, which I think is the best thing he could have done in the moment. And
1: uh, yeah, that's that's pretty heroic as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, mm. Gabriel, what do you I recommend a movie called Certified Copy. It's a little bit lighter. This is some heavy stuff, and it's important stuff. If you want to get a light break, it's in French. It's the lead actress is uh, Juliette Binoche, who's like the, the French babe in all the movies. Uh, the one in Chocolat, and so on. She's I quite like her as an actress. It's directed by Abbas Kiarostami. Uh, it's the only movie of his I've seen, but he's an Iranian director. Um, everyone's got a great film scene, and it's basically um, a kind of heartbreak. It's it's a very lightly told uh, story about things not really working out in love, uh, set in Tuscany, Italy. So it's really beautiful scenery and art, and it's sort of about an art uh, critic and a and an art collector, and it's I'll, I'll give uh, it's it's really about perspective shifts, about seeing the same thing and and coming to a different conclusion. So like th- there's one scene where you see a guy, old man on a piazza shouting at a woman, and he's just like, oh, this is terrible. You're it's useless. Whatever, whatever. And you think, oh, this is just some abusive dude in in a relationship where he kind of just shouts at his wife and it's really gross. Then he turns and they start walking. And the way he's holding her hand and the sort of earphone coming out of his ear, you realize he's on the phone and you think he's probably blind. He's being led by her. Then you go and meet them and then you realize, no, 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 he's totally full sighted. He was on the phone, not shouting at her, but he just likes holding her hand a little bit like someone who's being led because he's quite a touchy feely guy with his wife and he's being so angry. And he wants her to just know that, you know, he's he's, he's, like, he's loves her and he's cuddly guy. And she says to shout at this person who's like screwed up their hotel reservation. Um, and, and that's like quite an obvious version of it. But what this movie does is in an hour and a half, give you quite a profound sense of the whole movie. Um, sort of the first half of what you've seen being not what you thought you saw. Um, and it resonated with me uh, in terms of a book that I think I've re- recommended before, Amsterdam by Ian McEwen. It's the one that he won the Booker Prize for and is about journalism uh, and and the mistakes that we as journalists can make in, in failing to see that perspective shift option. Anyway, so those are my recommendations. Um, but yeah, I also just want to say shout out to Nick before we go, because I think that you're... Your ability to walk us through beginning to end, not beginning to end, but to to give such a a, a broad, rich but but quite you know uh, fleet-footed, historical, uh, build-up to this crisis, is is important. I think it's too easy to dismiss as Afghanistan as the graveyard of empires, as some place that essentially is doomed to. Right, compatible, Yeah, to meme it and and reduce it to that, and and so yeah. From me, thank you for 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 not doing that and giving us a sense of the humanity, and and it makes it feel all the more crushing to think about what's happened. Sure, to know that there uh, are yeah, real yeah. humans there. Well,
0: Their they laugh. and and yeah. Uh, yeah, I hope I hope that everyone, uh, despite these heavy topics and these dark times, which we will need more time to expand on precisely what comes next, Um, so do stay tuned for that. We'll probably do an episode or something like that at some point. Uh, But yeah, keep that flag of liberty flying in these times.